The wedding day. The wedding guests. The wedding dress. That totemic garment. That symbol of a major life event. My wedding day was my chance to show to the world and my groom how special I was and how blessed he was to have me. It was my chance to dress like a princess and emerge from the church as a queen. So I shopped. In secret, with a few trusted people. I wanted to be traditional about it, to surprise him on the day. He asked, of course. I wasn't showing him, but I was dying for him to see it. The wedding day arrives. I enter the church. On time, of course. I'm German. He turns his body to face me. Everyone is looking. But I only want to see what he is thinking. With every step I take towards him, I wonder what he'll say. I arrive at the front. My father backs away. It's just us, side by side. Everyone is to remain standing until we sit. He helps me with the dress. I still don't know what he's thinking. The camera fades to black as he leans in. You don't get to hear what he says. You don't get to see how he reacts. He tilts his head towards me. With a quiet but forthright tone, he says, Wow, you look so sexy. That's not what I was expecting. Sexy? So sexy? That felt quite inappropriate, actually. We're about to spend the better part of two months talking about love and human relationships. We'll be digging into a book that details the sexual awakening of a young couple. Hardly appropriate for a Sunday morning, is it? Well, we disagree. Songs is a book of love in a world created by a God of love. When it comes to the message of human love, the church has lost her voice. We've stayed quiet and the world has monopolized the message. If we don't talk about it here, then where? If we don't talk about it now, then when? The world isn't silent on human love. The Bible isn't silent on human love. So we will not be silent either. Can you believe how much hair I had 24 years ago? And a green suit for a wedding. Don't know whether you picked that up. Green. I really did say those words. The camera did really go to black. I did lean in and I said, wow, you look so sexy. What you didn't see was her face. <clears throat> it really wasn't what she was expecting. And in the same way, I'm convinced that for some of you, that's kind of the approach when it comes to Sunday mornings in church and talking about human love, about sexual intimacy. But you know, we really do believe that it's important to address the topic because the world is talking about this. The world has monopolized the message. Not only has the world monopolized the message, but our children and now hearing about it. I remember as a child going home from school and going to my mom and saying, Mom, where do babies come from? She was horrified, it was elementary school. She said, why do you ask? I said, because some of my friends told me that a baby comes from behind a gooseberry bush. She looked at me and she said, you see your father on Sunday, wait, ask him. 
So I went to my dad and I said, Dad, Dad, where'd the babies come from? He said, behind the gooseberry bush. I got my answer. Move on a number of years, my daughter is eight, elementary school. Uh, she's in an elementary school in northern uh, Germany, and uh, school starts at 7, gets out about 12.30, so she, she's home from school, I had the day off, and so I go through her backpack, I open up her folder, and there in the folder I see this, uh, the topic, human biology, and I think, that's interesting, and I look down at the page, and I see about 16 stick figures, a man and a woman, in different sexual positions. This was human biology in Germany to an elementary kid. I raised my eyebrows, which is Craig's way of freaking out. <laughs> I showed it to Vibka. She raised both eyebrows. Understatement. She freaked out. We quickly realized our children, our daughter, was hearing about sex. Now, I pretty much guarantee that your children are hearing about it too. I hope that it wasn't as drastically as my daughter heard about it. But the fact is, the world is talking about this topic. The, our kids are hearing about this topic. And the church is predominantly silent on this topic. That can't be a good thing. And so for the best part of two months of the next six weeks, Brad and I are going to tackle a book in the Bible that addresses the subject of human love. It's the book of Songs, the Song of Songs. If you have a Bible, please turn there. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, you can raise your hands in the air, and our ushers will be pleased to give you a copy of the Scriptures. Once you receive that copy, you can turn to page 672, page 672. That is the book of Song of Songs, also called Song of Solomon, also known as Canticles. It is a book that describes the topic of human love. So clearly the world talks about human love. Our kids are hearing about human love, but we also want to suggest to you the Bible talks about human love. So if we don't talk about it here, then where? If we don't talk about it now, then when? And if we don't address it at all, then we are the only ones that aren't, because even God does. God puts a book about human love and human sexuality and sexual intimacy between a man and a woman in his word. Now, as you look at the Song of Songs, you will notice the first verse. That's all I'm going to do today. I'm just going to talk about the first few words. The opening verse said, says, Solomon's Song of Songs. In other translations, it has the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, or the Song of Songs attributed to Solomon. I'm going to get into authorship and date a little bit later on, but at this point, note then that that opening verse identifies the text as coming to us from a particular context. That would be the 10th century before Christ, about 930 to 950 B.C. That would have put it within the time of a particular context, a particular language, a particular worldview about human love. That worldview would have been predominantly driven by a Canaanite expression initially. And the Canaanites, when it came to the topic of human love, believed that ritual sex, even group sex, brought one closer to certain gods. The Canaanites were promiscuous. And so here we have then this topic about love attributed to Solomon coming to us from a particular cultural context, speaking a message that ran counter to the message of the day. 
I want to say that that is pretty much the world that we've got to. We're not necessarily believing that group sex brings yourself closer to God, although some people do. But the reality is this message of free love is the message that our children are hearing. And into this context, God's word spoke. And I want to say it's into this context, our context, that God's word speaks. And it speaks a a clear message. After the Canaanites, there came the Corinthians. Now, we're not talking about the Corinthians to whom Paul writes. We're talking about the Corinthian order. It was known by a number of things, including architecture. And the Corinthians believed that when they worshipped other gods, they did so by way of temple prostitutes. Again, you have a definite message describing this idea of expressing human love. And and so it goes on. And then after the, the Corinthian influence, we get to the Greeks. The Greek influence is hugely significant, as we'll see in a few moments, even for the church. And the Greeks believed that we were dual-natured. It was a kind of dualism. They believed that the spiritual realm was good and that the physical realm was evil and was bad. And so when it came to spiritual practices, that was good. When it came to physical, physical practices, even sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife, that was a bad thing. Naturally, as time moved on, this influenced the way that the book we're going to study was interpreted. It's noteworthy that until about AD 90, Jews who read the Song of Songs would have interpreted this book literally as addressing the relationship between a husband and a wife. In fact, history records that parts of Song of Songs would be used at Yom Kippur and also on the 15th day of Av as, as young women would take to the streets in these bridal gowns. Most, many of them would have been borrowed, borrowed because they didn't want anyone to be set apart according to the dress that they wore. And they would put on these dresses, they would dance through the streets, and they would start to sing parts of Song of Songs. And on the streets at the side, there would have been these young men, these older couples, and they would have been listening to these words being spoken and being sung, and they would be sung as a reminder and a warning to God's people. Listen, we live in a world which prioritizes desire and attraction, but we follow a God who calls us to esteem family virtues and family values. This is God's wisdom. This is God's word. Listen to it. Make sure in your pursuit of human relationships, this is your drive. Prioritize what God deems worthy, not what you want. And so that's the way the book was interpreted as addressing human life. It was words of wisdom on human sexuality, on sexual expression. But then in AD 90, something changed. In AD 90, a group of Jewish rabbis got together in what has been called the Council of Jamnia. Now, whether it was a council and how significant it was is a matter of debate. What is not debated is that they were talking about which books should be included in the Jewish canon, the Old Testament. And a major discussion to them was the book Song of Songs. What are we, they asked themselves, to do with a book like this? Now, why were they addressing that topic? They were addressing that topic because they no longer lived in a Canaanite worldview. They no longer lived within that... Corinthian worldview. They were now living increasingly amongst a people driven and dominated by that Greek worldview. 
The idea that the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. And this worldview influenced the way that people thought about the book. Worldview always influences the way that we think about something. Worldview influences the way that our children think about sex. If we are quiet, they will receive a worldview from someone. And if it isn't us, and it isn't God's word, then what is it going to be? So they're discussing, what do we do with Song of Songs, this book about human love, when we're living in an age when human love and sexual intimacy is something that is really frowned upon? What do we do with this? So a Jewish rabbi by the name of Akiba stood up and said, I believe that the, the book of songs should stay in the canon, should be there because it addresses God's love for his people. If any of you spend any time studying the Song of Songs, you will realize that this, what is called the allegorical interpretation, this idea that whenever we read the, the the words that naturally lend itself to thinking about the way a man loves a woman and a woman expresses the love to a man actually has this spiritual counterpart. And so from AD 90 onwards, the Jewish community, and this ran off, and you'll see this in a moment, it ran into the Christian community. They started to think about the book of songs from an allegorical, from a spiritual perspective. This Greek worldview infected the way that people interpreted the book. And as such, it had less to do with human relationships. God became silent on his desire for intimacy within a marriage, in a sense, and the book was increasingly talking about the relationship between God and his people, or for Christians, Christ and his church. But God, they said, has nothing to say about sexual intimacy between a man and a woman, because that isn't the right thing to do. The physical is evil. Now, you may think I'm making this up. I'm actually going too far with this. So let's, for a few moments, go on a journey, a historical lesson about how the church, early church fathers, people who wrote some incredible words of truth about the cross, and about the resurrection. Let's have a look at how they talked about sex. What we'll discover is that very early on, a guy by the name of Tertullian, okay, born 155, died 220, an early church father wrote some great words. He, he said this, sex is evil. He said it is better for the whole human race to be extinct rather than to have sex. How foolish can that be? But why did he say it? Because worldview is a powerful thing. You live in a world and you hear over and over again people saying, and the message being driven from the elitist and sexual revolution always, by the way, comes from the elite, comes from the top down, never from the ground up. So it's happening today. It's not from the ground up. Every time someone is at the vote in this country on what is marriage, the ground up has basically said marriage belongs to a man and a woman. But from the top... Oh, no, marriage is more than that. Sexual revolution always from the top. What they were saying was, no, this thing is evil. In fact, Italian goes as far as to say that Eve was the devil's gateway. Ladies, haven't you heard that every time Genesis taught? It's always your fault. That's Italian. There it goes on. Oregon. This guy castrated himself to avoid sex. Just say no, man. Why do you have to do that? <laughs> Gregory of Nyssa. 
Adam and Eve were created without sexual desire. In fact, if the fall would not have happened, the human race would have reproduced by another means. Uh, help me understand that, Greg. What do you mean by that? How can someone get away with that worldview? Worldview will actually enable you to justify things that just don't make sense. Chrysostom, Adam and Eve never had sex in the garden because sex was evil and sinful. Eve became pregnant by eating certain plants. <laughs> Isn't this ludicrous to us? How can someone believe something that is so ludicrous and actually be so genuine about it? Worldview. Worldview is everything. You have a worldview. Our problem is our worldview is driven by what we believe to be true. And guys, there are certain things that we believe to be true about society, the world, the Bible, and God that guess what aren't. And in 15, 20, 25 years from now, people may well look back and say, look how crazy these folks were. Truth is always driven from the context of God's word. Truth is always exegetically derived, not personally inspired. It has to be driven by what God's word says. And if we start to allow our worldview to be driven by what's happening in our world, rather than by what's in God's word, we get as crazy as this. Jerome, you see we're going through the centuries here. He threw himself into thorn bushes to experience pain whenever he began to desire a woman sexually. In fact, more than that, whenever he felt tempted, whenever someone would walk by and there was a lady that he would find attractive, he would pick up a stone and beat his chest with it. You're getting the idea that spiritual is really good, but this idea of sexual intimacy, oh no, don't go there. This thing is evil. He believed that her husband was guilty of adultery if he engaged in intercourse with his wife. Guys, I've committed adultery twice, three times, four times this month. <laughs> Context is everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous. How can someone believe that? It just doesn't make sense. But see, if the only thing you ever need is God, and God is enough for you, then it makes perfect sense. But I want to tell you this. God said something wasn't good before sin entered the world. You know what is, wasn't good? It wasn't good for us to be alone. It is not sinful to desire or to express a desire for another person within the framework that God intends for it. And guess what? Some people's worldview will say that is crazy. Free love. But I'll tell you what, if my position of expressing my desire, sexual desire for my wife within the context of marriage is considered out of date and old school, then I for one am not willing to pay the price for being up to date. I'm unwilling to believe that it is okay for kids to grow up without their parents. What kids need is not a man or a dad and a mum or two mums and two dads. What they need is their mum and their dad. And I believe that is right according to God's word. <laughs> Who's thinking about the weak and the vulnerable? God's word makes sense. And I, for one, am not willing to pay the price for being up to date. 
because the worldview of today is as misguided as the worldview in which these folks lived. The problem is we can be so entrenched in our worldview that we just can't see it. These guys never saw it. Do you see it? Our prayer as we go through this series is going to be that as we just show God's desire for human relationships, God's desire for the single. If you're single here, God's got a word for you. For those that are young and newly married, for those that have been married like me this month, 24 years and up, for those of you that are here, and medically speaking, it becomes harder and harder, if not impossible, to be sexually intimate with your spouse. God addresses that. One of the remarkable things about Song of Songs is that the first five chapters talk about the ideal. We'll start to read this, those of us who have been married for 20 years and plus, and we'll think, yeah, yeah, wait till the honeymoon's over. But in chapter five, it talks about that. It, it talks about when the ideal meets the real in human relationships, because this isn't just a book for the single. It isn't just a book for the young, newly married. It's a book for even those people, as we'll see in a few moments, who've been married a long time. It says, rekindle that spark. Don't let it go cold. In a sense, what we see in Song of Solomon is an, a new, an Old Testament expression of Titus chapter three, 2, verses 3 and 4. In Titus 2, 3 and 4, Titus says, older women, you show those younger women, teach the younger women. What we have here is a young woman teaching single women, teaching married couples and even older married couples what it's like to rekindle the joy and the love that you had at first. That's what it's about. And if you understand the worldview of the scriptures, you rejoice in that. You realize there's no shame in saying that. It's not embarrassing to say that. It's actually a good thing. But if you live in a worldview that is so out of touch, then the words of the scriptures seem to be crazy. You get opinions like this. Let's go on. Augustine. He was promiscuous until his conversion. But then he said, sex is only for procreation. In fact, he went on to say the sex was not for pleasure even while trying to procreate. I got news for you, I had four kids and it was fun. <laughs> if you enjoyed it, that made it sinful. Well, I didn't repent of that either. Because I guess yeah, I, I don't agree with you. Again, worldview. Now we jump forward. Okay, I could keep going here. I hope you realize. I'm just putting a snapshot here. I could put up so much more of this stuff, but I think you're getting the point, right? Augustine, 12th century, 13th century. Sex is only permissible for procreation. In fact, sex for passion is a venial sin. You'll hear this language sometimes in certain Catholic orders today. Venial sin is opposite to a mortal sin. Okay, a venial sin would be to sin what a white lie is to lying. Okay, it's a sin, but it's really on the list of sins. It's, it's, it's not such a big one. And you see this as you go through. And it wasn't actually until we get to about the 18th century with the Puritans that the Puritans started to go back, and they had such a high esteem for God's word, that they started to go back and they started to explore the meaning of the Scriptures within the context of the Scriptures themselves. And they started to realize, you know what? God does have something to say about human sexuality. God does have something to say about the intimacy between a man and a woman. And it's actually a good thing. And really, that's what Brad and I are going to tell you over the next few months. 
we're going to tell you that human love is a good thing. And yes, it's expressed in ways outside of, of sex. But the reality is sex within human relationships, as driven by God's word in the context of marriage, is a good thing. Now, unfortunately for Brad and I, people throughout the history of the church who have had this interpretation of the Song of Songs have frequently been excommunicated. That means kicked out of the church. It got that serious. So Brad and I's prayer would be that you don't kick us out. Actually, Brad, you'd probably be okay. So you're going anyway. That does give you the liberty to be prophetic, direct, more direct than ever before. So take it. But the reality of this is this is the context that this book has come down through history to us in. And it won't be very hard for you to go online and you to find so many interpretations of this book that are along the lines of what I've just said. But Brad and I really believe the context drives the meaning. Now, I recognize that many of us have read through the Bible in a year, and we come to certain passages in songs, like Songs chapter 8 and verses 6 and 7, Set me as a seal upon your heart. Through the summer, we sang that song, didn't we? It's a great song going around right now. And, and we've sung it, and we realize that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that seal is a sign of, of, of a guarantee. We are God's. We are His ownership. And so it's possible for many of us in this room, like me, to have read through the Song of Songs and reached a passage that really does inspire us with regards to our relationship with God. And that's okay. That's good. We can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Finding behind an expression of human love a message from the God of love is totally okay. But what we recognize is that true meaning of the text is exegetically derived, not devotionally inspired. In other words, the true meaning of the text has to be found within the context to which that text speaks to us, and it speaks to us about the importance of human love. We're addressing this because God addresses this, and we're addressing this because we think that this word comes to us today very much like the word came to Jewish young people in the time that they were living. The word that meant something then is a word that definitely means something today. So that's the background. Let's go into the, the text. Again, Solomon's Song of Songs. What's interesting about this is that the authorship here is clearly attributed to Solomon. Was it Solomon that wrote it? We don't know. But we do know that early Jewish sources say that Solomon and his wisdom is the basis for it. It may well have been a collection of love poems, or there may be a single story, which is what I believe, being weaved through the entire text that was collected together and attributed to Solomon, and Solomon gave it a seal of approval. There are a number of scenarios here, but what we know is it's attributed to Solomon. Being attributed to Solomon, as I've said, that takes the dating of the book in around the mid-10th century, think about 950 uh, B.C., puts it in a definite context, but it also raises a question, doesn't it? Here is Solomon putting his name and his stamp of kind of approval on a book that cherishes and promotes the love and the monogamous love that one man and one woman share. Why is that a problem, you think? We'll have a look at this verse. 
This is speaking of Solomon. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. If this is the work of Solomon, and it really does promote the expression of love in a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman, what on earth do we do with this? Well, we have to realize, first of all, that Solomon was probably someone who was far better at teaching wisdom than he was at living it. Many of us probably know people like that. They'll give us sound advice when we need it, but all too often they don't live the advice they give. But more than that, there was a Jewish rabbi centuries ago, long time ago, who believed that Solomon gave his stamp of approval to this book because in his old age, looking back on his life, realizing how far he had drifted from that initial commitment he'd made to God with his father David, seeing how far he drifted, he looked back and was full of remorse and guilt. And so Rashi said that this book is essentially Solomon's work of repentance. A guy by the name of O'Donnell, you hear his name a couple of times, he's done a great piece of work on the Song of Songs. In fact, Brad and I are thinking of actually printing some of this and giving it to you. He writes these words. In view of his, Solomon's, idolatrous, polygamous relationships that have led his heart away from the Lord and, give, and away from sexual purity and marital intimacy, he sets himself up as the foil in this song. And thus he writes the greatest of his songs in a distant, self-depreciating tone to say to his readers and to us, listen, on the matter of marriage, do as I say, not as I did. I started ministry as a, a student pastor many, many years ago. Whenever we would come to the issue of sexuality and we would talk about sex and relationships, one of the biggest issues that parents would have would be who's giving the message. Is the message going to be given by someone standing up and saying, sorry, my story is really boring. I've been married for 24 years. I was a virgin until I married, and I've only ever had sex with one woman which for most parents <laughs> is actually the best way of doing this? Or is it going to be given by someone who stands up and says this? Listen, I made so many mistakes, and this has brought me so much pain, more pain than you will ever know. And please, as I go through this, I'm going to share my story with you, but as you hear my story, don't do what I did. Do as I say, because it's not worth it. Because see, all too often, parents are afraid that when someone stands up and says their story just like this, they're afraid that a young person listens to this and thinks, well, they did it and got away with it, so I can too, right? And I say that to, to say this, I've titled this message Eros, and I'll explain that in a second, without shame for a reason. There is no shame. In the Messy Church series, we said that life does 
what life does. And it brings us into some tricky places and to some desperate experiences. But the Jesus we worship isn't just a Jesus who can bear the weight of our sin. He can also carry our shame. He carries our dirt. And as we go through this, and we're going to champion values of monogamy, of chastity, words that seem out of a different century. I recognize there are people in here for whom this isn't true. And it would be so easy in a moment like this to feel the weight of guilt and condemnation, but you don't need to. I'm going to be unapologetically calling out the wisdom of living life and enjoying relationships in the way that God says. I'm unapologetic for doing that. But at the same time, I want you to realize the truth of what O'Donnell writes. It is possible for every person to express their experience of God and life in a redemptive way, no matter how shame-filled that may have been. There is no shame. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, as we go through the book, Brad kicks off next week with, uh, from verse 2 and following. Very quickly, even if you've cast your eye through the text, now, you'll have seen that some of the language in here is really interesting. What on earth are we supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to understand this? So clearly, there needs to be some kind of help that we're going to have. O'Donnell, again, talks about four guideposts for interpreting the text. Well, I'm not going for guideposts. We're actually going for bedposts, Okay. There are kind of four bedposts that a real intimate marital relationship really stays within. And this kind of helps us frame the book. They're very simple. So as we go through the text, this is basically the, the lines within which we stay. The first line is this. This book is a song. It's a song. It is poetry, not preaching. In this book, there is no reference of law of sin, of grace, of holiness. In fact, scholars debate whether there is even a reference to God in the text. There is no indisputable reference to God in this entire text, many point out. So this is a song. And so for all of you artists in here, you get this point because you artists will realize that art communicates a message. Songs have a message. The message is powerful. Films have a message. The message is powerful. This is a song. It is ancient poetry. It has a message, and the message is powerful. But we need to recognize that it's a song. It is poetry. And we need to pick our truth that we discern through the words. Secondly, not only is this a song, this is a song about human love within the context of marriage. Now, back then, there would have been three types of, three expressions of human intimacy, sexuality, within the, within the country context at the time. One of those would have obviously been, as we've said, the, the religious context. It would have been temple prostitution. That would be classified today under sexual slavery. Another one of those would have been the polygamy that would have been around in the other contexts, but in the Hebrew context, that would have been essentially monogamy, the relationship between a husband and a wife. That is the, the, the ideal 
of Scripture established in Genesis that we move away from as the result of the fall. So this is a song. It's a song about human love, but it's a song about human love set within the context of marriage. Thirdly, and this is really important, this song is connected to other parts of the Bible because it is found in the Bible. This is the part that many of us overlook. Karl Barth, the German theologian, says that what we have in the Song of Songs is essentially a commentary on love as God designed it to be. He says that in fact, what you have with the Song of Songs is a commentary on Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. The words say this in Genesis. The man said, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were, and I love this, both naked and they felt no shame. They were both naked and they felt no shame. Karl Barth believed that what we have in this text of the songs is actually a commentary on what this is like in a world where the worldview on sex looks completely different. What is it like to believe in God, to believe in the, the importance of sexual intimacy and the expression of human love happening within the confines of a, of a relationship, a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman which is both enjoyable, which is pleasurable, and which knows no shame. And I believe that Bart is right. After 20, nearly 24 years of marriage, I can honestly say that it is possible to be naked and to feel no shame. It is really possible to be intimate with my wife in a way that that intimacy and the, the, the joy of sexual intimacy grows through the years, not dissipates as we get older. That is a message that seems to be countercultural to the message of the world. And it's for this reason that I called this message today, Eros Without Shame, based on Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Eros, if you think of the, that word, it, it's actually one of four Greek words used to describe the idea of love. Eros is the word from which we get the English word erotic. If we think erotic, we think about sensual pleasures that are corrupt and wrong, but that's not the meaning of the word. The original meaning of the word eros is the pleasurable love associated with romance, with physical touch, with sexual intimacy. Songs calls us to the experience of eros within a marital relationship that knows no shame. That leads us to the fourth bedpost. This is a book about human love within the context of marriage, but it's a book of wisdom. Solomon himself expresses what it was like to be intimate and connected to the wife of his youth. Even though his experience subsequently was 
far different to that, he writes these words in Proverbs chapter 5. He says, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Did you think that you would come to church and hear a pastor say breasts? It's probably going to get repeated multiple times over the next few weeks. We're probably thinking about doing a blush cam, turning up the red lights a little bit so that you actually can hide your embarrassment. Um, Solomon clearly here espouses the virtue that actually says it's a good thing to be satisfied with your spouse. It's It's a good thing. And I want to tell you through experience, it is a good thing to be satisfied with your spouse. It's a great thing. Many people believe what the world is giving them. They believe that the best sex happens freely, openly. But we want to say through this series, no, eros without shame is not the same as shameless eros. They're two different things. And if we live our life pursuing free love, putting sexual pleasure above above everything else, we too are in danger of getting to the end of our life like Solomon and actually realizing how wrong we've been. No, the, the best sex happens within the confines of a committed relationship where over and over again through time the barriers are broken down and you get to the point of realizing I can be who I am with this person and feel no shame. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to gain. It's just us. Eros without shame is not the same as shameless eros. And if you're a young person here, this is the message that we want to champion for you. It is possible to be intimate with your spouse and to enjoy it after 24, 25. Some of you will say 40 or 50 years. And of course, there are other issues associated with that that we'll we'll get to. What happens when you get older and the reality of life and the reality of love matches or meets and clashes with the ideal picture of it we have in our heads and in the book? And the second half of the book deals with this. So this is a book of wisdom. And it's a book of wisdom that offers advice to everybody no matter what stage. O'Donnell again, I I love this, look at this. O'Donnell says, the book of Proverbs can be called a book for boys. Again, it comes to us within the context of the Bible. It's a song, it's a poem, okay? It comes to us within the context of other books in the Bible. The book of Proverbs, for example. The word son is used in Proverbs over 40 times. The word daughter is never used. My son, stay away, Solomon says, from that kind of girl. Don't marry that kind of girl. And most of you have heard this over and over again, you females. Yes, yeah, all our fault. But we're taking the book out of context. We're taking the Bible out of context. He goes on. Proverbs says, marry and save yourself with that kind of girl. Proverbs 31. Be the Proverbs 31 type of, uh, of person, girls. Solomon, wait for that. That's how the book ends in Proverbs, quite intentionally. For Proverbs is a book for boys, but the Song of Songs is a book for girls. And the message to girls is patience, then passion, or uncompromised purity, now unquenchable passion, then. 
Now, I love this part. In Proverbs, the young lad is told to take a cold shower. In songs, the young lassie is told to take a cold shower. Get ready, you married couples. However, also in songs, the married couples, the newlyweds, and the not-so-newlyweds are told to take a warm shower together. He says, I mean it. God's word means it. The shower part is optional. The passion part is not. Whether you're single, this book has got a message for you. Whether you're married, newly married, this book has got a message for you. And if you've been married for years, this book has got a message for you. We're in a season where the seasons will change. Autumn will be upon us, and soon there will come winter with those cold winter nights. Couples, learn what it's like to warm one another up even through winter, especially through winter. That's one of the messages of this book, and it's a good message. And we believe it's a message that we need to get out there to counteract the message, the negative message about sex that is out there. So what do we want you to, to do through this series? Three things. Firstly, be here every week. We believe this is an important tool for you and for your children. Let me say this. If you've got children and you're thinking, how on earth do I talk to my children? If you go onto our website, Central Wesley, and go onto the current series, Naked and Unashamed, you'll see a blog, uh, a link to a blog post. I've written three already this week. Um, and you will also see just a document there that our next-gen team has prepared, prepared for you to begin to talk to your children about the issue of sex. We go from birth, obviously you don't do it at that point, all the way up through, uh, I believe it's the middle school and high school years. So if you want some guidance with this, we're giving you guidance. But be here for it. Join us every week. If you miss it, be online. Go catch up. Secondly, be in community. A number of you are starting as short circles. A number of you wanted to do short circles, and then you realize this topic, and you think, I don't know what they're going to ask me. I ain't doing that. We're saying to you, hey, get involved in community. It's an important apologetic that we need in our world. Be involved in community. There's still time to, to sign up for those, but talk to people. And thirdly, this is the most important thing. If you're a couple here, commit to these three things through the fall. Firstly, dialogue daily. I'm a passionate believer that good sex happens in the bedroom when greater things happen outside of it. I believe that. I believe that in order to prepare for an, a great experience in the bedroom, we need to start by dialoguing daily. It starts by connecting outside of the bedroom. Secondly, date weekly. I know it's hard. We got children at home, we've got busy schedules. They're going to have to be creative with this, but we need to do it. And when we date, we make sure that we date because we've already dialogued outside of our date. Dialogue daily. Try and date weekly. And let me just say, this is a challenge. Depart quarterly. Some of you are thinking, yeah, Craig, are you paying the, the babysitting bill for this one? Be creative with it. You know, Vipka and I have got no family around us. None. But we live in community, so 
we will depart this quarter, and when we depart, we will make sure that our kids are taken care of because it's really important to keep the love alive. We need time together. This book, you'll notice, starts with a passionate kiss, and it ends with a couple running through the mountainside, enjoying a mountainside hike all on their own. And they've overcome the hardships of chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And there in chapter 8, they're still enjoying company together because they depart frequently. What we're asking for in the suit, just that. Tune in. And our prayer will be this, that God will do an incredible work. Our prayer will be for you single, that God will just encourage you to realize there is nothing better for the rest of your life than starting now to make your relationship decisions on the basis of what God says. For you younger couples, married couples have been married for, for a long time, we pray that God will start to restore, rekindle that romance. And then thirdly, for all of us, we pray that we would be better equipped to engage in a world whose worldview about sex is very similar to the worldview into which this book was thrust. God's word is still true. It is still relevant, and it still needs to be taught. And we want to help you do that. So join us. We believe it's going to be a great series. Brad continues this next week. But as we leave here now, let's go to God in prayer and just ask him to do a work in our hearts. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you so much that your word is true, every part of it. Even a book that talks about human love has something to say to us. And so, Father, our prayer would be that your word would speak. I want to pray for those that have been listening to this message today, Father, and then may well have been challenged by something. I just want to pray that no shame would take a foothold, that no guilt would remain. I pray that even now your Holy Spirit would just come close to close to us and would just affirm us that we are your children, that you love us, and that there is no sin that you cannot bear and no shame that you cannot handle. Father, for those of us who are married and newly on the road, inspire those couples, Father, to, to really look and journey through this book together in a way that inspires them to continue on the right path in their relationship. For those of us that have been married for, for longer than that, for whom maybe the romance has gone stale, where the real has overcome the ideal, I pray that you would speak a word to our hearts too and help us fashion again the type of relationship that inspires our children and our children's children to realize just how great it is to follow after your word. And so God, we give you ourselves through this series and we do pray that you would work in our hearts. And Father, we pray at the same time that as we leave this place, that we would live lives that give glory to you in all things, including the way we love one another. Father, we recognize that human love is, and the expression of it is not limited to the marriage relationship. First John tells us to love one another in the way that you have loved us, by laying ourselves down. Help us to express love that way through this week so that others would know that we are your children. God, we love you, and we thank you that you have poured your love into our hearts that we gratefully accept through faith. And we pray that as we leave here, you would go with us. In Jesus' name. God's people said.
Amen. Thank you all for being here. Remember the annual report as you leave. Thanks again for your patience. And it's going to be a great series. We'll see you all next week. God bless. Have a great week.